I realise that, you know, I'm, I'm at an extreme end of what can possibly be considered celebrity. Um, but although it's a very anachronistic idea um, that literary celebrity would have anything to do with the early modern period, um, I hope to show you um, that the social role of English writers of the late um, 16th century was one which was becoming increasingly affected by um, ephemeral and sudden rise of fame um, because of the growth of, of a newly accessible media. So the commodification of an author's reputation, just as much as the commercialisation of his writing, was increasingly common in this period, to the extent that I think we can see um, a nascent uh, entertainment industry forming in London, with the growth of both permanent playhouses and an increasing availability of cheap print. Both of those locations, the theatre and the print shop, were to become an unlikely battleground for a political phenomenon of the Elizabethan period, which is known as the Martin Marprelate controversy. So, first things first, Martin Marprelate is not an actual man. Um, Marprelate is instead uh, the nom de plume used by uh, a team of Puritans who were wanting to anonymise themselves in order to attack the Church of England in a hail of paper bullets. The reason that seven... Uh, of these Marprelate tracts became a phenomenon in what was to be a two-year campaign between 1588 and 1589 was not that they had anything especially new to say um, about the overhauling of hierarchy in the Church of England. Those ideas had been presented um, many decades before by other Presbyterian writers such as Thomas Cartwright and John Field. But the reason why I'm interested in this is because um, what uh, gained Marprelate his notoriety were that although the ideas were not new, it was the way that he was presenting these ideas um, to a public audience. He was in some ways spinning them um, through a use of irreverent and language and speaking to an audience in a colloquial style. And that's why this paper is really about the rhetoric of fame. So the initial response of the state and church um, to Mar Prelate was to find one, to find them and to stop them. Um, but they were also, uh, this attempt to find the, the culprits was also accompanied by theological responses, um, either through uh, preaching um, or by writing incredibly heavyweight uh, pamphlets by establishment heavyweight. Um, this official anti-propaganda was ultimately mocked by my prelate himself in subsequent pamphlets because of the verbosity of the style of writing that the, the authorities were answering with. Almost a year after my prelates first made himself known, um, there was a concerted effort to reply to my prelates taunts in his own earthy tones. At the start, a few independently outraged writers, and I steal that term from um, Professor Joseph Black, who is the editor of Marbury Late's writing and will be working with me on the Nash project. Um, he wrote, so, sorry, the independently outraged writers wrote their own responses to Marbury Late in a doggerel form. Um, but ultimately, it was a group of professional writers, um, so Thomas Nash, John Lilly, Robert Green and Anthony Munday, who were engaged seemingly at the behest of Archbishop Whitgift's chaplain, Richard Bancroft, in a campaign of ridicule against Marprelate. At the same time, theatre companies were putting on shows lampooning Marprelate, which were, as far as we know, independent of any organisation from the establishment. So what you have are individuals 
um, within the theatre industry, especially deciding that they are going to get involved with this religious debate. But you also have the church authority itself, so Archbishop Whitgift and his uh, chaplain, deciding to employ uh, artists or professional writers to respond. So in this multivocal atmosphere, the rules of engagement were being changed. In some ways, both the Marprelate Collective and Bancroft's anti-Martinist pens for hire were behaving conventionally in the sense that they were both working within a system of patronage. Um, the radicals, the Marprelate group, relied on the help of sympathetic aristocratic patrons um, who hid them and their press as it moved around the country in order to evade discovery. They also financed them and they also helped distribute the pamphlets. There's no evidence... Uh, detailing the extent of official control over the anti-Martinist campaign, but we do have it from Archbishop Whitgift, who's writing a decade later in 1597, that it was Bancroft's advice that the course was taken which did principally stop Martin and his fellows' mouths, viz. to have them answered after their own vein in writing. The implication is that many of the anti-Martinists were, at the very least, endorsed by the church. What was radical, though, was the manner in which both sides tried to persuade the public through their writing. The printers and writers of the Marprelate tracts were eventually discovered and silenced, but their lasting influence um, is in many ways far more insidious because they were showing future writers where the weak points were in the rhetorical structure of authority. The new terms of engagement that Marprelate heralds um, was arrived at by a combination of elements which I want to argue today um, could be understood as a form of, of celebrity status. Um, I understand this nascent form of celebrity as being what uh, one Elizabethan writer, Gabriel Harvey, describes in 1593 as the brittleness of public fame. Unlike a strong form of fame built up through many years of heroic acts, this brittle public fame um, is what I would say we would now consider to be celebrity because um, it's, uh, to quote Charles Kurtzman, um, status on speed. It's a fame which, because it gained uh, through a fast and seemingly random ascendancy, is potentially destabilising not only to an individual celebrity but to the society in which he or she lives. So in the rest of this paper, um, I'll il illustrate for you how this sudden conferral of status on Marprelate and his respondents was achieved by four processes that I would say we can still recognise in the production of celebrity today. So one, getting your audience on side by entertaining or outraging them. What the Marprelate writers did was to ignore the rules of stylistic and rhetorical decorum. Um, they discussed the weighty substance of religion, but in the low register of quotidian speech. Marprelate is, is very much like a stage fool because he used a feigned nativity, um, sorry, not naivety and ad hominem attacks on individual bishops in order to both amuse his audience and speak truth to power. So in his fourth tract, which is called Have Any Work for Cooper, Marprelate explains that his comic style is intentionally used to reach a popular audience. So here you have an, an author who is very much aware of the style that he's using and his audience being a public one. The most part of men could not be gotten to read anything written in the defence of one against the other. So one side of the religious debate against the other. I bethought me, therefore, of a way where men might be drawn to do both, perceiving the humours of men in these times to be given to mirth. Um, other mirth I used as a covert, wherein I would bring the truth into light. 
My prelate's use of a low register of comedy was repeatedly referred to by the people attacking him, anti-Martinists, as we, we collectively term them, who compared him to clowns, uh, stage clowns such as Richard Tarleton and John Lanham, who were famed for telling uh, bawdy tales and for their improvisational skills. Um, they also compared him to the stage vice, which is a tradition going right back to medieval plays, and it's a devilish character who is both argumentative and seductive, which is uh, a great persona for someone who is a, a, a religious radical trying to seduce a public audience into thinking differently. Richard Bancroft, um, so our establishment figure, was, despite what his boss, um, Archbishop Whitgift, says, not the first to have realised that fire needed to be fought with fire. Um, an early independent response to Mar Prelate, which is from June 1589, um, is the doggerel whip for an ape, sometimes attributed to the popular writer John Lilly, um, who is involved, we know, in this anti-Martinist campaign more generally. This doggerel um, suggests that the ministers uh, that are answering Mar Prelate in serious terms are ineffectual and that they should hand over responsibility to specialists of this low style, i.e. entertainers like him and entertainers of the theatre, such as the clown John Lanham. He says, Ye grave men that answer Martin's mows, he mocks the moor and you in vain loose terms, leave apes to dogs to bait, their skins to crows, and let old Lanham lash him with his rhymes. The mixing of high and low registers broke with decorum, and, and it irritated authority figures, but it also allowed both Marprelate and the anti-Martinist writers who followed him um, to persuade the common sort of their own position. Marprelate not only used the entertainment value of comedy to get his message across to a wider audience, he also used a trick taken from the tradition of satire. And that's my second example of how Marprelate can be thought of as a politicised celebrity. Um, this is the creation of a recognisable public persona. Now, satirical personae have been around as long as satire itself, and is a, a way also to distance the individual writer from his usually acerbic comments, and in many cases also to give the writer anonymity. The writers of the Mar Prelate tracks were also choosing a meaningful name. The surname Mar Prelate is performative because he's intending to mar the prelates, and his, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's not very uh, sophisticated. The, f the first name, um, Martin, might be a re reference to Martin Luther, um, but it was picked up um, by the anti-Martinists because Martin also means, thank you OED for this, um, variously a kind of monkey, a swift-flying insectivorous uh, songbird, and a victim of burglary or deception. And so that's why many of the anti-Martinist pamphlets refer to Marprelate as an ape because Martin is, is an ape and a fool. My prelate was just a satirical persona, though it was also a brand, um, and ultimately this was associated with his loquaciousness and subversive style of writing. My prelate um, even refers to this ability of a catchy brand name to amplify his message. In Hey Any Work for Cooper, my prelate threatens, like V and V for Vendetta, that his brand is stronger than any one individual. For the day that you hang, Martin, assure yourself there'll be 20 Martins spring up in my place. Indeed, the multiplication of Martins is in, enacted in later Marprelate pamphlets, um, which are written in the voice of Marprelate sons. Remember, this is all still the same collective writing. This, these aren't different individuals, but they're creating the illusion that uh, there will be a continuation through the generations of, of these uh, popular Presbyterians. 
And indeed, this persona would live on into the Civil War period, so, you know, 100, 100 years later, when um, Presbyterians and even more radical levelers such as Richard Overton were appropriating the Marprelate name to write under. Marprelate writers um, only needed to look at popular print market for examples of celebrity branding. John Lilly, the one who we think wrote Whip for an Ape, um, had previously created an incredibly popular literary character called Euphues, um, in, first in his romance Euphues, The Anatomy of Wit in 1578, and its sequel Euphues, His England, 1579. These Euphues books were such bestsellers, I mean, relatively, of course, <laughs> that other writers began to write in a sort of fan fiction using the name of Euphues um, in their titles continuing stories and also, importantly, copying uh, a periphrastic style of Lily, so sounding like Lily, to cash in on the success of this literary brand name. So the third feature of the Marprelate tracks um, is maybe one of the main influences on the writers of the 1590s, um, such as Thomas Nash, who's another one of the anti-Martinists and the person that I'm, I'm working on an edition of. My prelate used uh, rhetorical tricks to reduce the gap between his readers and himself in order to make a popular audience feel that they had something in common with this otherwise radical group of writers. And it's a bit like the fan le uh, letters between Disraeli and his fans. Um, it's the problem of um, a new media actually distancing you from your audience is trying to be overcome. So by writing in a more approachable style, the Marprelate writers created the impression of a virtual community who all shared an ethos. Um, this is achieved through conversational and direct form of engagement, but also used by using print conventions such as margins and uh, brackets to give the impression that the page was a site of discussion. Um, so Joseph Black describes the effect of this in his introduction to a modern edition of the Marprelate tracts. We hear Martin's laughter, and so you have Martin as he's writing going, hee-hee-hee, hee-hee-hee, I cannot but laugh, ha-ha-ha. Um, <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Which is odd for, you know, a Presbyterian. <laughs> we see him struggling to read one of John Bridges' lengthy sentences. So John Bridges is one of the uh, authority, you know, part of the established church, and he's saying, oh, do you not see how I pant as I continue to try and read this incredibly long sentence? We watch with complicit amusement as he conjures up and confronts opponents, then responds to onlookers butting into the conversation from their seats in the margins. And so what you have on the page, you have your main text, and then in the margin, you uh, a convention, of course, is the margin is uh, explaining the main content. But here, these marginal notes are actually voices of an imagined audience who are interrupting the main text. So they are literally marginal voices interrupting. So sometimes my prelate um, has his imagined audience members cheering him in parenthesis, so in the middle of the, the main text, but sometimes also from the margins, as I said. So he starts, therefore no Lord Bishop, and is suddenly interrupted by uh, parenthesis. Someone saying, now I pray thee, good Martin, speak out, if ever thou didst speak out, that her majesty and council may hear thee. And the sentence continues, is to be tolerated in any Christian commonwealth. So someone has imagined, in parenthesis, to be shouting into the main text. So Marprelate is imagining that he's speaking, and that speech is being transferred onto the page, and it sort of uh, it flattens down the distance between himself and his audience. Meanwhile, in the margins of this section, it's this interruption. 
and this break with decorum is a voice in mock, display, uh, mock dismay at this indecorous audience member saying, what malapert knaves are these that cannot be content to stand by and hear, but they must teach a gentleman how to speak? Himself also interrupting, but at least from the margins. So this is all part of a rhetorical tactic to make Marprelate seem more persuasive by capturing the patter of spoken English and making the audience complicit in the text. Um, the Marprelate writers realised that they needed to be uh, embodied through the text in order to be seen as trustworthy. Wes Falkirth writing on Marprelate's detractor Thomas Nash and the notorious Italian writer Pietro Aretino argues that early modern writers were increasingly confronted with the need to address a potentially unknowable audience who were distanced from the writers as never before through the anonymity of cheap print. In order to bridge the gap between themselves and an unknown reader, writers consciously used a conversational style in order to make themselves more sympathetic to their audience. And Nash, for example, uses this. So what I'm saying here is that although the religious uh, argument of Mar Prelate might not have translated, it's the style which actually influences later writers, even if they disagreed with his politics. So Nash, for example, um, imagines himself uh, with a group of friends sitting around a table and saying, will you hear what's a united voice and opinion abroad? Gather yourselves around in a ring. And he shows them his rival's pamphlet up his sleeve. So here in my sleeve, some part of the epistle I've read to you heretofore. So it's really evocative language that is, is actually quite new at this time in, in the late 16th century. So in rhetorical terms, um, this falls into the realms of ethos. It's about audience response, or at least the audience perception of, of the credibility of a speaker. And it's as a concept for, in rhetoric, it's complicated by the distance of printed text that can... Um, sorry, the distance that printed text creates between the writer and his audience, because after all, originally the persuasiveness of an orator was down to his personal interaction between him and his auditors. This distancing that print creates and the attempt to overcome it is uh, a potential indicator, I'd argue, of this nascent form of celebrity, which uh, similarly must produce the impression of proximity um, between the, in fact, not just spatially but socially distinct celebrity and their fan base. Um, right. My final example of the way in which the Marprelate controversy changed the field for engagement uh, by celebrity writers is a move away from style into matter. There's a clear intersection between media communication and the individual celebrity, um, with their status being created, amplified, distorted by the media which they use to promote themselves. The Marprelate phenomenon was amplified because of the relative speed of the media being used at the time, i.e. cheap print, the public uh, stage and word of mouth. So although individual reader responses to the Marprelate tracts are, are hard to pin down, um, certainly there's an impression that this was a fast-developing story. Uh, documenting the controversy many years later in his Church History of Britain, Thomas Fuller describes the confusion um, of the state to the success of these controversial texts. He says, it's strange how secretly they were printed, how speedily dispersed, how generally bought, how greedily read and how firmly believed, especially of the common sort, to whom no better music than to hear their betters upbraided. So Fuller is here describing the speed that those texts are being distributed and the popularity amongst the common sort, who were made to feel included in the debate by seeing uh, establishment figures brought low. 
but at the time, Mark Prelate was incredibly aware of the mater materiality of his text. Um, he'd begun his campaign in response to a colossal doorstopper of a book by John Bridges, um, a defence of the government established in the Church of England for ecclesiastical matters. Bridges' tome was a huge quarto of 176 sheets, cost the reader seven shillings. Marprelate's tracts were at most seven sheets, and his smallest is a broadsheet, and these sold two to nine pence, which is about one-tenth of the price of Bridges' book, so they're also economically more accessible. Um, Marprelate used the materiality of his and Bridges' texts as a metaphor for their opposing views to the public access of religion. Um, he tells Bridges, I think you had uh, more need to gather benevolence amongst the clergy to pay charge towards the printing of your book, for men will give no money for it unless it be to stop mustard pots. So Bridges' work is good literally just for the fact that it's paper, that it can be used to stop mustard pots. No nothing to do with his dreary content, especially as it was delivered to an incredibly specialised group of readers. Meanwhile, if the tradition had been to see small pamphlets as trivial, it was exactly this ease of producing these texts that gave them a political immediacy that Marprelate was saying was turned to his advantage. So while his writings and ideas were circulated easily, hidden away in pockets and interleaved in other books, Bridges' work, he argued, was going nowhere, literally. Marprelate sarcastically describes Bridges' texts as very briefly comprehended in a portable book, if your horse be not too weak. Uh, so he's saying it's so heavy it'll break a horse's back. So the combination of these things, humour, a strong persona, a conversational quality, all dispersed in a cheap and ephemeral medium, um, artificially inflated the importance of the Marprelate brand, giving the controversy the air of publicity. So um, the church, as I said, had initially been um, attempting to quash up start pamphlets by using its extrins uh, extrinsic ethos, its uh, power and its authority. When they realised that the funny and conversational approach of Mar Prelate, which had been provided in short, sharp bursts, was reaching new audiences, their response was to reply to Mar Prelate in kind. Um, Lily justifies using Martin's populism against him in his anti-Martinist tract, Pap with a Hatchet, I was loath to write as you have done, but I learned that he that drinks with cutters must not be without his ale dagger, nor he that buckles with Martin be without his lavish terms. So he's saying, I will also bring my knife to the fight if you're going to meet me like that. We also have an impression of how the theatre represented Marprelate on stage, thanks to descriptions in these anti-Martinist pamphlets. Um, they represented his, him as an ape, um, but they also describe him being abused and anatomised on stage, first dry-beaten and thereby his bones broken, then whipped that made him wince, then wormed and lanced. Um, they show him uh, as the participant in a May game, um, uh, performing as Maid Marian in a, a group of um, different Presbyterian people. So this was another way of taking Marprelate on at his own game. He was being ventriloquized by his opponents um, by quoting their more verbose lines in order to mock them. Um, Sorry, he had ventriloquized his opponents by quoting their verbose lines, and now the actors and writers were ventriloquizing him and actually embodying him on stage, too. The problem with this type of engagement, though, um, was although he was being presented to be derided, um, in reality the anti-Martinists were amplifying him in what we could call his effective presence, 
So effective presence is a term used uh, by Brian Reynolds and Henry Turner and describes the combination of material, symbolic and imaginary power that turns a person, an object or a concept into something iconic. Um, so this form of celebrity grows precisely through acts of reference, imitation and efforts to become like an icon, endowing him with an authority that tends to reflect back onto the historical figure. Celebrity is therefore created and strengthened through acts of recognition within a community. Um, An anti-Martinist writer Pasquil, um, the persona of tentatively Thomas Nash, shows an awareness of this communal aspect of fame and claims that he too is becoming as widely read as Marpre Lake. Um, he has a recognisable brand, he has three different Pasquil tracks, um, and he uh, has a conversation with um, an interlocutor, Marforius, um, who describes that he is being read everywhere in the court, in Oxford and in Cambridge, um, and also, importantly, um, all around the country and where people will meet him, would be glad to meet him with a cake and a cup of ale. So it's not just Mar Prelate, it's also his uh, attackers who are starting to realise that they need to present themselves as friends of the public and as approachable writers, basically. What ultimately happened then was that both Mar Prelate and his initial attackers, or at least the writers that were employed to attack him, um, were becoming more and more alike in the eyes of the state because they shared uh, tactics of lowering the tone of religious debate and uh, were courting publicity. Both were essentially um, camps of unauthorised people writing about theologically sensitive issues. And although this was initially overlooked and actually courted by the true authorities, um, the anti-Martinist response was being seen as insubordinate and as being as equal a threat to core hierarchical values of the Elizabethan state. They too needed to be silenced. Um, my prelate had acknowledged that the Puritans were angry with him for bringing the tone of the religious debate down, um, but actually uh, the authorities weren't incredibly happy with acting companies either. Um, there's a Privy Council note that uh, says that the Lord Strange's men, um, who's one of the acting companies at this time, were given great offence to the better sort for daring to handle in their plays certain matters of divinity of the state unfit to be suffered. Around the same time, Francis Bacon is also condemning the anti-Martinist campaign as legitimising the tone of Marprelate's engagement in state matters. Um, so he writes around the same time, Whatsoever be pretended, the people is no meet judge nor arbitrator. The danger that Bacon identifies is the danger of an audience being swayed in political matters by charming and iconic writers. The fear was that the power of persuasion might lie not in the hands of traditional authorities but with individuals who spoke to the people in the language of the stage and the street. So in conclusion, it's that that was the real impact and danger of the Marprelate controversy. Um, it changed the playing field in the late 16th century for celebrity writers to engage in political debate and it gave them a template to create the illusion that they and their readers uh, were members of the virtual community. Thank you.